Hi, Tanu. Thanks so much for being with me. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to talk about your story because you're an artist. And I was reading your bio and you are both a DJ and a visual artist as well. You had an audiovisual installation in Manhattan in 2019. You may have had some more recent work as well. With a lot of our early guests, we've talked about how they can solve global challenges and do good work in the world in very long-term sort of official ways, like going into nonprofit work. But how can listeners use art to have that same influence and help solve important issues like climate change, for example? Yeah, thanks for this question. I think that one of the things that draws me to art and artistic practices, whether it's, in my case, I have a musical practice through DJing or through audiovisual arts is because it allows you to tell stories in different ways. Ultimately, I'm a storyteller. So in my work also as the communications director at 350, I'm telling stories through words. I'm telling stories through really demonstrating like what what the climate crisis is doing to our communities. And through the arts, I think that you're really able to visualize that and, and give people a different way of inspiring. I think that policy sometimes can only get us so far, but in terms of really moving hearts and minds, I think that the arts has a huge role to play. And so there's a, like, for example, there's an artist who's a Native American named Chanupa. I'm, I'm blanking on his last name right now, but he does a lot of work around the climate crisis. And it actually helps people to to really connect to what's happening to our planet and to really visualize like, and be inspired to action. And I think that that's the role that art has played. I mean, even for me in terms of coming into the climate movement, one of my first um, sort of inspirations that led me to come into the climate movement was the 2014 People's Climate March Mm -hmm. that happened in New York City. And one of the things I was really struck by was all of the art, all of the visual art around like why it was that different communities, whether it was native communities or immigrant communities um, or like coastal communities, like being able to visually show what it is that they care about. And what really struck me about the People's Climate March was the celebration and the celebration through art and the visualization of of the crisis that we're in. And I I think that's what really inspired me to come more into the climate movement in a formal way. That's great. I, I wrote down the words, moving hearts and minds. I think any social movement, any movement to solve an important issue like climate change needs to have that as the groundwork as sort of the first step. And that was part of what motivated me to start Boulder as a media platform was to sort of have that influence of moving hearts and minds, not necessarily in an emotional way, but in a in a knowledge-based way, in an evidence-based way that helps people act on these issues. So I, I really liked how you phrased that. I'll jump ahead to the question I had about communication on climate change and related global challenges. You have had a very 
deep background in communicating important issues. You were with the New York Immigration Coalition in a similar capacity. So how can listeners effectively communicate on important issues like climate change, perhaps through artistic expression or perhaps through more formal media like writing? I've been in the world of sort of communications and storytelling since I was 22. And for me, one of the reasons why is because it's one thing to try to get a bill passed in Congress. It's another thing to really um, to to advocate beyond just the policy level. So for for me, in order to get a bill passed in Congress, whether it's like the Green New Deal, whether it's immigration reform, you actually need to understand how an issue is impacting people. And so in my role at 350.org, I get to interact on a national basis with people who are firsthand being impacted by the climate crisis. And I truly believe that when you are able to advocate for people by putting their stories front and center, you're able to really demonstrate why it is that we need certain change. So for example, 350, of course, works to um, stop the fossil fuel industry. And I think that a lot of people don't really know what that means. And so when we say we need to stop coal, oil and gas projects and we need to keep it in the ground, we need to keep fossil fuels in the ground, we actually need to paint a picture of why that is. And so one of the best ways to do that is with voices on the ground. So let's take the fight to um, stop pipelines like the Keystone XL pipeline or the Line 3 pipeline in Minnesota, or Dakota Access Pipeline. What was the thing that actually moved people to action on any of these pipelines? It was the stories of people on the ground. So when working on the Keystone XL pipeline, I was working specifically with indigenous communities and farmers who would have been impacted um, by the pipeline route. And so you had farmers, white farmers included, being like, if this pipeline goes through, it is going to leak onto our land and we are not going to be able to produce our crop. You had indigenous communities saying that this is a tribal sovereignty violation. These pipelines are going through land that is not the land of the U.S. government. You know, the Dakota Access Pipeline, like the fight around DAPL, what was the thing that moved people to action? It was the slogan, water is life. And so it very much was an indigenous-led movement. And art was a huge part of it. There was amazing art and beautiful posters created that said water is life. And that was something that even if you were not indigenous, even if you weren't didn't live on the route of the pipeline, you understand the basics of the right to clean air, to clean water, and to clean land. Because we all deserve that right. We all deserve that right to thrive. And so you saw millions of people really rallying around the hashtag no dapple movement and the water is life movement, the mini Wakoni movement, because we could see visually on the ground what the camps to stop those pipelines looked like. And so I I spent a lot of time telling the stories of people on the ground right now. um, We we, we were able to stop the Keystone XL pipeline by executive order through, through president Biden, the line three and and dapple pipelines are yet to be stopped. And so we're really working with communities on the routes of that pipeline to, to, to really tell their stories because it's their stories that allow us to push for the legislation and executive orders that we need. It's what actually moves the actual target 
to stop those pipelines, for example. Great. To me, I think climate communication has two parts. On the one hand, you're amplifying the stories of people who are negatively impacted. But I also think an important part is telling the stories of what is possible in terms of the positives. So I, I think your answer touched a lot on the former, kind of that first part. How do you, in your role, go about communicating a positive message around climate change that doesn't just identify the problems of our current world, but the potential for a better future? And, and what sorts of strategies do you use to do that? Yeah, that's a good question. So 350 is all about people power. It's about the power of people to make change. And so even though certainly a lot of organizations are very good at saying what they're against, what we're trying to do is to say that we actually deserve better. We, Our communities across the world, because 350 is a global organization also, deserve to thrive. And the possibilities for if we're able to transition from coal, oil, and gas into renewable energy is actually communities that are safer, that are able to grow their own food, that are using mitigation tactics against climate against the climate impacts. And also what we're doing is advocating for real solutions. And so to be clear, for us, real climate solutions aren't necessarily following Elon Musk and making like machines that suck carbon out of the air. That's actually quite a false solution. It actually just helps perpetuate that like, oh, well, if we just like create a machine that'll suck carbon out of the air, we can still keep burning coal, oil and gas, right? Mm -hmm. So what we're right. trying to say is that the solutions uh, to the climate crisis actually are rooted in communities. They're rooted in whether it's like sustainable farming techniques, they're rooted in wind and solar, they're rooted in actually us being able not to just survive on this planet, but to thrive on this planet. And so I, I agree with you that the root of climate communication actually has to be, um, has to have a positive frame, because we're also living in a world where like, there are wildfires and hurricanes and tropical storms freezes like in Texas that happen more often and oftentimes people feel very um, stuck like they're 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 afraid and they don't actually know how to make change and so fear-based communication only goes so far but actually what moves people to action is is the possibility of a better world and that's what we try to depict in our communications and storytelling. I wanted to shift to your background and the sort of path that listeners can take to get involved with climate nonprofit work. I read that you you have an academic background, you have a master's in communication, and then you you worked as a researcher on a, a book about about 9-11 compensation for undocumented families. I, I thought that was a really interesting story. Do you recommend your sort of path from being a, an academic into becoming a, a professional communicator, do you recommend that sort of path into climate work for young adults who might feel like they have those strengths and have that impulse and want to make this big difference on climate change? And, and if you do, or I guess, 
if you don't totally recommend your path, what is, what do you think is a good path into your sort of work? Yeah, I mean, I don't think I necessarily have a traditional path, and maybe it would be good to explain my background a little bit. So I came to the U.S. when I was 18 for university. I'm from Sri Lanka and Thailand. I sort of grew up between those two places, and I went mm -hmm. to Hampshire College in Massachusetts, where I studied um, international relations and critical media studies. And most young people, myself included, like, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. And I was just really, I went to a liberal arts college and I was really exploring different things. I knew I was interested, interested in social justice issues and I knew that I was interested in making a difference in the world. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think one of the things I realized in studying international relations and international development was I really came to kind of an understanding of the ways in which colonialism and imperialism have really impacted communities in the global south because i'm from the global south yeah. and really understanding the deep inequities in in society so whether those are racial inequities whether those are class inequities whether those are like global south versus global north inequities and so when i graduated college i i moved to new york city because what young 20-year-old doesn't want to live in New York City? <laughs> I do. Not, <laughs> with not much of a plan. And yeah. maybe like a thousand dollars that I had. And <laughs> I and it, and it was a little tough because I'm an immigrant. I'm not an American citizen. And so I had to find yeah. a job where that would sponsor my visa. I ended up working at a restaurant for six months while I did a, some of these internships. So working mm -hmm. on this book around called The Accidental American, which is about the undocumented workers who worked on the restaurant at the top of the Twin Towers. I think in my early 20s, my experiences personally as an immigrant, working in restaurants with other immigrants and then working on these research product projects about like immigrant communities, that's what sort of like swayed me into doing work around immigration to start with. And so it, it's, it's not a very traditional trajectory. So I ended up going back to grad school. I uh, went to UMass Amherst, got this degree in communications because I always knew I was interested in storytelling. Um, and when I graduated from my grad program, I got a job as the communications lead at the New York Immigration Coalition. A lot of people ask me like, how did you go from immigration to climate? And what I say is that I actually think it's a fairly natural trajectory because immigration and climate are so inherently linked. And so right. one of the things over, and I worked at the New York Immigration Coalition for almost seven years. And one of the things that I noticed with immigrant communities I was working with in New York was that a lot of people were moving because of climate related issues. So whether it was people from Central America who were either crossing the border or, or asking for refugee status. It was because of a combination of political strife, corruption, um, and climate impacts. So whether it was drought or like farmers not being able to grow their crops. I noticed a lot of immigrants from South Asia, particularly Bangladeshis, were immigrating also because of sea level rise. Yeah. And we were, I was also working with a lot of like Haitian immigrants who are migrating also because of poverty and earthquakes, et cetera. And, uh, you know, 
And, and in all of these cases around all of these communities from the global south, they were met with a lot of restrictions, immigrant restrictions, immigration restrictions in the U.S., and also a real lack of understanding about why people are moving in the first place. Nobody wants to just randomly leave their home. They would actually probably prefer to stay, but oftentimes they aren't able to because of lack of opportunity, because of um, stressful situations within their home countries. And so, and I really love doing work around immigration. I, I feel really passionate as an immigrant about immigrant communities. Um, and then where it connected to climate for me is in 2014, I was one of the immigrant rights experts who was brought in to support the climate march in New York in 2014. And this is like right before the Paris Climate Agreement was signed. And I sort of helped to get a lot of immigrant rights organizations signed on to be a part of the climate march, which made sense because like a lot of immigrant communities, again, are impacted by climate, the climate crisis. And because of the climate crisis, we're going to see not just external migration from one country to the other, but internal migration. We're already seeing in the U.S., like whether you yeah. live in Miami or whether you live in Louisiana or Texas, people are starting to move to other areas because of the climate impacts that they're experiencing. And what's projected by the year 2050, there'll be close to a billion climate migrants. Um, and also the reality of the climate crisis is that those who have had the least to do with the crisis oftentimes the most vulnerable black, brown communities, communities from yeah. the global south, they've had, the, they've had to, the least to do with causing the climate crisis. In mm -hmm. fact, it's polluting the countries that have the highest levels of pollution are industrialized countries like the United States, countries also who have corporations like Exxon and Shell, et cetera, who have been digging for oil for decades and generations now. So... In 2017, Trump, Trump had just been elected. I was feeling really burnt out. I had been doing some of the work around the Muslim ban um, mm. at the beginning of the Trump administration. But I needed a change and an opportunity showed up at 350.org and I went for it. And my argument, or my thesis rather, was that Climate organizations like 350.org should hire communicators who are actually not traditionally in the climate movement because people like me can actually connect the dots between mm -hmm. climate with other issue areas such as racial justice and migrant justice that very much have to do with yeah. climate. And that was how I got into the climate movement. And for, for me, like a lot of these social justice issues are connected to each other. Like so much of the time in nonprofits, these issues are siloed, but we actually have to think about it holistically. Like COVID is a great example of that, right? In this pandemic, we've seen how this pandemic is related to healthcare, people's right to healthcare. It's related to like who are the most vulnerable essential workers who are working in low wage jobs who are, who deserve, um, rights and benefits so that they are protected not just from this virus but just like in order to do their work it's connected to making sure we have a decent minimum wage that's over 15 dollars right and also it is connected to climate because as the earth warms more and more viruses are going to be unleashed and so i think that the pandemic is 
is a huge lesson to us around what happens when you don't take a crisis seriously and you do not act mm. fast enough. So if we did, if we learned anything from late 2019 or into early 2020 is that first of all, we should have all locked down months earlier <laughs> and, and we, we could have maybe resolved this. And, and the same with the climate crisis, right? So like, we can't wait till the last minute. In fact, we have the IPCC report basically says that we have less than eight years to turn around the climate crisis. And so we cannot wait till year eight. We need to do this now. And in fact, we should have done it 10 years ago. And so we're in a really critical window of opportunity. And so for me, climate is an umbrella issue and all social justice issues are within the umbrella of climate. Yeah. And um, and so for, for folks who are interested in climate communications or climate storytelling, I don't think you necessarily have to have a traditional like every single job you have has to be in, in an environmental organization or a climate organization, like mine certainly wasn't. But I think that if you can really show that you understand the linkages between issues that impact people and how you want to make structural shifts to better people's lives, then you can, you can do what you want in whatever area you want to work in. Yeah. I really like that. I want to reflect a couple points you made before I ask the next question. I think certainly that's a compelling case for working on climate because in my experience with with this platform, I'll go into say a, a podcast conversation thinking that the conversation will be about climate, but then it turns to so much more. Mm -hmm. And the reality being that climate change is interconnected with global inequality, issues of global health, like you mentioned with the pandemic. And one could make the case that working on any one of those issues, well, I should say working on climate change will actually help solve a range of other issues because it is the root cause of those issues, or at least a major factor. And communicating about climate change through those other issues, I think is a really helpful way for listeners to reach a lot of people, to build movements. If someone's not interested in climate, they may very well be interested in issues of global health or inequality, and that can bring them into your camp, you could say. So I, I think that's, those are some great points. I wanted to turn to the work that 350 does and the nature of being a climate nonprofit in 2021. And I, I want to ask a question about how nonprofits can best tackle issues like climate change. And for another conversation I'm having later for this podcast, I've come across this approach to nonprofits that more emphasizes a bottom-up approach, almost it's related to being in the global South. And basically the idea that some Global South-based nonprofits can more effectively create bottom-up change because they don't come in with these preconceived notions about how to impose change from the outside. So I, I wonder your take based on your childhood growing up in the Global South, what are the keys to a nonprofit helping the global South become empowered to help to solve climate change? Like what, what is the blueprint for nonprofits who are coming into the fold or for listeners who want to start a nonprofit 
for not just creating important changes in the West, in the United States, but also in the global South? Yeah, that's a, a big question. I mean, yeah. the, the reality is like all nonprofits rely on funding, right? And oftentimes funding streams influence like what a nonprofit can do. And so there's a, that's a whole other conversation around like private foundations and where money goes and like what nonprofits can or cannot do. What I will say is that international nonprofits that are based in the global north oftentimes put this top-down approach onto the global south. And, and to be clear, 350.org is a global organization, but it was started in the United States by Bill McKibben with six of his students out of Middlebury College. And so this is a this is a nonprofit that's run that initially was run by Americans. Yeah. But and white Americans particularly, but in in terms of the model of 350, the reason why this is a global organization that has regions. So like I work for the region of the U.S. in 350.org, but we have a Pacific Islands office, we have an Asia office, we have an Africa office, Latin America, Canada, and Europe, and each of those regions get to set their own priorities. So for regions of 350 that are in the global south they are setting what the priorities are for them around a bottom-up approach to climate activism and climate solutions. And so depending on what region we are, we're sort of coming together to create our goals from a bottom-up approach. And so, and my simple answer to that question is that, um, that, you really have to listen to the people most impacted by the climate crisis. And you have to also be hiring people who, you know, have connections to the global South, to communities in the global South and not to make assumptions about the solutions that work best for communities. Yeah. And so I think 350 is an interesting model because of the regional approach and therefore the bottom up approach. But I, I really caution international nonprofits that are, based in the West from this model of like swooping down into the global South and telling people what they, what they should be doing. That's not the way to solve the climate crisis. The climate, like in order to mitigate and turn around the climate crisis, we also need to understand what is, what is happening to communities on the ground and what solutions they already are probably implementing in order to support their own communities. That's great. I want to shift to, let's see, let me just gather myself. I want to ask a question about grassroots activism and because that's sort of the lifeblood of 350 and empowering people to make change from the bottom up. For listeners who may not want to devote a career to climate change, but who still care deeply about it and who want to help solve it, perhaps in the span of a single day, what sorts of advice do you give them for how they can best do that? Yeah, I think that there's a lot of different levels of engagement. So understandably, not everybody can like dedicate their life to stopping the climate crisis. But I mean, you can definitely sign up for 350's mailing list and we send out 
very regular emails to get people engaged in terms of like signing a petition to make sure that Biden stops the Line 3 pipeline. Uh, there's actually a major climate summit coming up on April 22nd, which is Earth Day. You can help advocate on social media so that global leaders understand that we're watching as they climate goals for the next five years. You can join local protests and rallies that are focused on stopping the climate crisis. Like you can basically help to be part of a collective mass that pressures governments to take action. Oftentimes in the, in the climate conversation, it gets simplified to what you as an individual can do in your daily life to stop the climate crisis. And it ends up being a conversation about like recycling or <laughs> don't use plastic straws. I'm not saying that those things aren't important. <laughs> right. Great, like do that. But actually the climate crisis is a systemic crisis. And so it's more than just stopping the use of plastic bags and straws. It's actually about, and actually the fossil fuel industry would love to, for you to think that that's the only thing you should do. But in fact, like the grassroots piece of all of us collectively mobilizing together to show that we care about what's happening in our communities in regards to cl the climate crisis, that's what actually makes a difference. So for example, 350 mobilizes people all around the world. Since um, 2014, we've had almost uh, an annual mass, mass mobilizations all across the world. The last one was in 2019 was the global climate strikes, which was very right. youth centered and 7 million people across the world, including millions in the United States in like 50 different cities had these major marches and I do believe that because of the pressure of that kind of grassroots mobilization, that's one of the reasons why climate was such a huge part of the 2020 election cycle. Um, right. And so those are the ways in which you can get involved, like on a local level in your communities, you can join a 350 local group in, in the U.S., so if you just go to 350.org, you can find out all of this information. You can sign up for a mailing list. You can join a local group. You can start a local group. And 350 sort of works as a hub to provide resources to people who want to make a difference in their communities. Outstanding. And for sake of time, I'll combine my last two questions into one. We've, we've covered sort of the everyday acts that people can take and also the paths that people can take to get into this work if they want to do it long term. My final question is about the sorts of leadership lessons you have learned about solving global challenges like climate change through career work and sort of putting a, a bow on this conversation. What advice do you give listeners who want to help tackle climate change, not just on an everyday basis, but throughout the course of several years in the biggest possible way. And a related question that I always ask our guests at the very end that you may answer similarly, you may have the same answer, but related to that question, what do you tell people who want to change the world in whatever way they want to, but don't know how? Two big questions. Sorry to load you with a lot at the end. So I would say to listeners that 
the biggest way to help tackle climate change is to, to help sustain pressure um, on governments and to always remember that the climate crisis is a systemic crisis. And so, and, and to, to make systemic change, it takes more than one person. So even if you can just sign a petition or just show up to a rally, it really does make a difference. And, and, and for people who are inspired to go into climate nonprofit work or even into running for office or to do governmental work is to really, to really push for real climate solutions, to really understand that like we really have such a short window of time. And so it's really important for people to sustain their demands that we deserve a better world and we deserve a world that can thrive and so transitioning off of fossil fuels and to renewable energy is just the tip of the iceberg right ultimately it's about making sure that we are transforming our communities from ones that are completely unequal and sustained off of inequity to ones that where there are millions of jobs and renewables where people have opportunities and I do think that it might it might be feel hard on a on a local level as to how to do that, but getting involved in like your local climate organization or even your national one can really help. And then your last question was, sorry, could you ask it again? Yeah, just a more general question. What do you tell people who want to change the world but who don't know how? I'd say that there's lots of different ways to change the world and changing the world is a really overwhelming statement. I don't even know if I'm changing the world half the time, but, (laughs) but I do know that, um, that all of us have a right to joy and to thrive Mm -hmm. and that we have one life and we have one planet. And so I'm not trying to move to Mars. I assume you aren't either. (laughs) I would visit. I don't think I'd move there. Yeah, I'm sure it's beautiful, but this place is beautiful too. So yeah, I'd like to sustain it. And <laughs> I mean, I think it's climate is a really, really overwhelming issue, understandably. Like we've talked about it, it has a lot to do with inequity. It has a lot to do with imperialism and colonialism and the kinds of industrialization that has gotten us to the point that we are. And it's also a huge opportunity to take a real look at ourselves and our communities and what we want in terms of creating a different kind of world. And I think that the pandemic is, again, a really good lesson for all of us in terms of like what could happen if we continue to go down this path. And I don't know about you, but I definitely think this pandemic has made me, has humbled me, has made me kinder, has made me way less judgmental of people and way more desiring of all of us really connecting. Yes, because I don't want to just survive. I want to thrive. That's pretty poetic. And I think a, a great way to end. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Tanu Yakupitiege. Tanu, thank you so much for an inspiring conversation. Thank you so much for having me.